Good morning, church. This morning I'll be reading from Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Thank you, Laura, and good morning, guys. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors at Hiawatha. If you're new and tuning in. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, and to the rest of you, it's uh, great to see you virtually. Uh, thanks for, um, for being here and, and gathering virtually today with, uh, with our church from afar. Uh, we are going to start a new series in the book of Ruth today, as you just heard Laura read from. 
Uh, we are going to be in all of chapter one. This will be a six-week series, uh, and it is, uh, it's a great little book. This is actually kind of an historic uh, time for us, or sermon series for us, because it's the first time we will have ever preached through a book twice in our almost 14 years as a church. The first time through Ruth being back in 2007, uh, which I'm sure you all remember perfectly. And so, no. But we are going to take a second crack at this book. Uh, we, we really enjoy it. We've looked at it in, in teaching settings as well, kind of in between then and now. But this is the second time we'll have preached this book. And it's a gem of a book in a lot of ways. It's about a young Moabite woman named Ruth, which you already uh, have met um, in chapter 1 through the reading just a second ago. Uh, but whose husband dies, and then she travels back to Israel with her Israelite mother-in-law, Naomi, there finding God's provision, not just with food, but with community and ultimately marriage. And so it's a story of redemption. We're going to talk a lot about that word in this series. I won't define it in full right now for today, but just kind of hang on to that. It's a book about being redeemed. It's a book about redemption. And one thing I'd like to point out right off the bat is the first half verse of verse 1. So just how the book begins, just with a few, few initial words, where it says, in the days when the judges ruled. So that's how Ruth begins. This story took place in the days when the judges ruled. It happened during the time of the judges. So it's concurrent time-wise with the book of Judges that comes right before this in the Bible. So I don't have time to go into this deeply, but if you've read the book of Judges before, you know how bad things get in that book, especially with how Judges ends. It's bad in the beginning, but it gets really bad at the end. And actually also with how Ruth begins here, which we'll see uh, shortly here uh, today. So to have this little story about a widow finding love again is beautifully complementary to Judges. And it speaks in and of itself about how one day God, through his son Jesus, will bring an end to this kind of like judges-like downward spiral of evil and sin that the world just can't shake off its back. Nor can we shake off of our backs personally. And that, remember, must be our guiding principle interpretationally. Uh, and so let me be clear with this right off the bat, and we'll come back to this every single week. Just like we did uh, back in the book of Psalms and the, the Gospel of Mark series and before that last year in the book of Acts series as well. But let me be clear. Jesus is the hero of the book of Ruth. Ruth means nothing without Jesus. Ruth has no meaning without the person and work of Jesus Christ because Ruth is Jesus' shadow. So if you take Jesus away... Ruth goes away. There's no such thing as the book of Ruth if you take Jesus away because the Old Testament is the shadow being cast backwards into history uh, from the person and the work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And so the stories, the characters, the images, the themes in the book serve the purpose of either directly predicting his eventual arrival, like at the very end of Ruth where it talks about his genealogy, or more often, indirectly predicting his arrival by typifying and symbolically foreshadowing it. So, so with that said, there's more to say about that. And if you want to talk more about that, we would love to talk with you, uh, whether in person or um, uh, over a Zoom call or something or a phone call or email. We'd love to talk to you more about this. There's much more to say, but I do want to start that way. Uh, otherwise, we will just be inhibited from getting the right, true, proper, God-intended meaning from this book uh, if we don't start and stay in that lane. 
as we read this book these next six weeks. All right, so let's dive into chapter one today. If you have a Bible and want to turn to Ruth chapter one or a phone app, please do. Uh, but I, I will have, um, you'll see some, some of these sermon slides uh, kind of go over these uh, main texts here as well as you saw it when Laura was reading. You can follow along there if you want to, but if you want to have the context in front of you, turn to all of Ruth chapter 1, and we're calling today Famine, Death, and Grace. Famine, Death, and Grace. So just kind of by way of summary, uh, Ruth begins on a pretty depressing note. One commentator says about Ruth 1, in the midst of a terrible time, something terrible happens. A young Israelite family, Elimelech and Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, journey to Moab because there's a famine in Israel. Their two sons marry Moabite women, which was unlawful for Israelites to do, actually. So there's a pronounced sin here at the beginning as well. But then at some point, all three men die. So Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. So In a few short verses, we move from severe famine to being forced out of a home country that um, these people loved to lots and lots of premature death. And, of course, with that, despair. This is the dark backdrop against which the rest of Ruth will end up shining, and we'll see that today, uh, too. In, In a lot of ways, I think this is representative of human existence at large. Sin and famine, and in today's Uh, case pandemic. Uh, There's relational strife. There's grief in this book, tons of grief, and again, just despair. And I think you get this sense when you read about Naomi in the first chapter, there's just hopelessness. This is not a woman of hope uh, here, at least at this part of of the book. And so we have these things in our lives too, right? That's why I say I think this this is a book that speaks to, as the whole Bible does, human existence because this is history. It's not just a myth or a made up story. This actually happened. These are real people just like us who are sinners separated from God, experiencing the weight and the fallenness of evil being into the world, being, being brought into the world uh, centuries and millennia prior. And so this is, again, the backdrop, though, against which God is going to shine. My old pastor uh, back at my uh, previous church before I planted Hiawatha used to love to say, God loves to be painted into a corner. And I always like that. And, and I think what he meant is God loves to be put in impossible situations to show us that he alone has the power to save, not us. <clears throat> and so God loves to, to be in that position. He loves to be put in impossible situations. He loves to be painted into a corner. And I think that's, that's kind of what you have here in a way in the very beginning. You at least have this bleak picture of reality and that God alone will be able to resolve. And so... What I want to do today, and this will kind of serve as an extended introduction to the book in some way, but I do really want to preach the first chapter of the book, and next week we'll dive into chapter two and and kind of um, make some headway from there forward. But what I want to do today is look at three breaks in the clouds. So it's a very dark, it's a very dark section of history, biblical history, and uh, in some ways just right here within the story, it's a dark, it's a dark background. But I want to talk about three breaks in the clouds, even right away here in in Ruth 1. And so the first one is God ends the famine. So just six verses in, we see that God is already starting to kind of undo some of the problems that got Naomi to this place in the first place, to Moab and and her husband Elimelech, to Moab in the first place. So in verse 6, it says, 
Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so this might seem like a small inconsequential detail, but Naomi's return to the land is a big deal theologically. It is yet another return in a long line of biblical returns, or in some people's cases in the Bible, their first-time entrances into this holy land, uh, like, like Ruth is going to have here in just, in just a little bit. And so God is allowing for this by grace, but this is, this is a, a, another, uh, it's a blip in the radar in one sense because it's a small microcosm, but it is, it is yet another instance in a long line of returns to this very land that God writes into his word and has allowed, it, has allowed to occur throughout biblical history. So if you know these stories, think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. Think about the Israelites after spending 400 years in Egypt and then being saved and redeemed there as well, but then returning to the land after a longer stint away. 400 years, generations of people that were expulsed from that land now going back. But then later in history as well, their return from Babylonian captivity, which was another time they were pulled out and exiled from the land because of their sin, but God graciously returned them after 70 years. There are other instances as well, but what I like about Ruth is that it's more of a microcosm example. And Abraham was as well, and Isaac, and those are microcosm examples too. Sometimes it's on a national level with Israel, but this is a small, almost a whisper of that same theme, even though it's on a microcosm type level, a micro level. So in the grand scheme of things, though, this is significant. All of this is significant because of what the land symbolizes. And that is, we come to learn later in the book, the hope of a new Garden of Eden. The hope that after we were exiled, after humanity was exiled from God, there's this hope that God is going to bring us back to a land, a land where he dwells, where we can maybe see him again or walk with him again, talk with him again, and where this could be this expectation of deliverance on that really kind of high cosmic and spiritual level. Land in the Bible, if you don't know this, understand this. It will help you understand so many stories, so many prophecies even in the Bible, some of Jesus' teachings as well. Land is typical of salvation. Land is typical of salvation in the Bible. This also reminded me in Luke 15 of the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus teaches on, where this younger son is under this self-imposed exile, where he sins against his dad and and, um, just kind of splurges and spends his inheritance and squanders it. And he's, he's separated from his dad, but kind of in reflection, he realizes his sin, and then he runs back to his father's land or his father's estate, and, and his dad sees him from afar and embraces him, throws him a party. Lots of great stuff going on in, in that parable, uh, but it also has to do with physical exile, physical land, and a return to an estate or to an inheritance or to a land. And so the fact that Jesus teaches about this theme as well is extremely significant. When he tells this parable in Luke 15, and he talks in other, in other terms as well, kind of on this level, but in Luke 15, when he, when he gives this parable, when he says, this is a sign of what the kingdom of God will be like, he is ultimately showing that it is him. He is the one who would allow for the true and final 
return to God. And that is the point. These return themes or return stories or return motifs strewn throughout the Bible aren't really about land. They're about returning to God. They're about returning to Jesus who calls himself land or a portion or a share in the New Testament, which are land, uh, idioms for land elsewhere in the Bible. He is the ultimate place of God's presence, the ultimate promised land, the ultimate Eden. And so when these themes are strewn throughout the Bible, they are about returning to God, and Jesus makes that clear. Because the famine of, and this is the way that Ruth kind of spins this idea, the famine of sin is over. The famine of sin has been ended. It's been undone and paid for, and the way back has been paved by the very blood of Jesus Christ himself, God's one and only Son. And so that leads me to this, this second point, which is death precedes return. Death precedes return. Um, verses 5 and 6, so again, this is the second kind of like sun break, starting to break through the clouds idea in the early verses of the book of Ruth. Verses 5 and 6 together say, both Malon and Kilion died, then she arose, then she got up, and with her daughters set to return to the land. So do you see the correlation? The order is really important here. But death, in the Bible, death precedes return. We see this theme actually elsewhere with Moses' death preceding Israel's entrance into the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy. So again there, Moses died, then the people returned. Or even before that, back when they were still in Egypt, a Passover lamb had to die when the death of the Passover lamb occurred. When that death happened, then they escaped. Then they got out. The orders never flipped. And so here we see this this theme come up in, in the book of Ruth as well. In this case, these two men, actually three men if you count Elimelech, but these two men, these men of Bethlehem, keep that in mind, these men of Bethlehem die, and the narrative picks right up on the heels of that to say, the famine is over. God has provided for his people. Return is possible. So death, the famine is over, God has provided, and the return is not just possible for Naomi, uh, but it, but it happens. So this is then to say, symbolically and prophetically and theologically, this is how the shadow of Christ is prevalent here. When Jesus, the true man of Bethlehem, which is where he was born, dies, when the famine of sin is ended, then by his grace and then through our faith in him, we arise, we get up too to return to the land of salvation, the new Eden of God. And the flip side is also true. It is not possible by any other means to to be saved, to enter the land of salvation. Not by our works, not by our best intentions, not by our acts of social justice. I mean, we're seeing this kind of here in Ruth 1 as well, right? It's more clear in the New Testament, but we're seeing this here. There's this absence of these things here just a death occurs then god appears by grace to end the problems and to bring people back to himself but again 
It's not our acts of social justice. It's not our best intentions. It's not observance of the Ten Commandments. It's not our love for the poor. It's not by whether or not we wear our masks perfectly during this pandemic. It's only Jesus' famine-ending death. That's it. The book of Ruth is, is a beautiful, circumstantial shadow of this, but Jesus is the full-blown sun streaming through the clouds reality of this. And so Ruth, the woman then, in this story, on, on one side of things, becomes a picture of us. Her story and Naomi's story too, but Ruth's story especially is a picture of us. She is a non-Israelite foreigner who was welcomed into God's family by grace. And there are instances of this elsewhere in the Old Testament that we're supposed to pick up on, these aberrations, these little breaks in the pattern of foreigners being brought in seemingly without kind of any, any precondition, just they were brought in, they, they were married in, they were brought into God's family. But to theologize about that a bit, this is again to say that, that this is our story too. We are, like Ruth, we are foreign to God. We are foreigners to him. We are enemies of his. We are alien to him. We are distant from him. We don't speak his language. We are in exile to him due to our sin. But, here's the good news, but he became like us in order to relate to us. He, he became like us to speak our language. He became like us to take on our sin and to remove the distance between us and him. Ruth is a distance-ending book. That's what it's about. Many other things too. But it is here at the beginning a book about distanced being ended. It's being solved. It's being ended and bridged. And that's our story as well spiritually. When it says here in the book that God, quote, visited his people and gave them food, these are clear allusions to Christ ahead of time. The Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 168 talks about Jesus' birth as God's visitation. Same word is here in Ruth 1. God visited his people here in Ruth 1. He visited again later in a much greater way when he became a human being like you and me to visit us, not to crush us, but to become like us so he could die for us and atone for our sins. And of course, Jesus talks about his body as food as well. So when it says God visited his people to give them food, later in the story, he would visit them again to give them his body as food, his blood as drink, so that through his suffering, we might be spared and brought in, that our exile might be ended. So again, these are not coincidences. These are not coincidences, but carefully placed details in the biblical stories to prepare us for the advent of Jesus Christ and to further flesh out for us what the gospel really is. But if you look even more closely here, there's another figure who becomes a picture of a large swath of humanity as well. And, and I think a warning to us all, whether you're a Christian or not listening to this, it's for all of us. It's a warning or an exhortation for all of us. And that figure is Orpah the other daughter-in-law of Naomi. And maybe you notice this as Laura was reading this, but there is a clear contrast. There's a comparison to begin, but then a clear fork-in-the-road type moment for these two daughters-in-law, right? Ruth goes with Naomi, but Orpah doesn't. 
Back in verse 12, actually before that, in verse 12, Naomi actually says to both of her daughters-in-law, turn back, my daughters, go your own way. Then she says, or then it says, Orpah kissed her, but look at the strong contrasting conjunction here, but Ruth clung to her. Not Orpah kissed her and Ruth clung to her, but Orpah kissed her only. That's, that's all she did. She didn't do anything else. But Ruth did much more. Ruth clung. Not just kissed, Ruth clung to her. And then later, this is more of the kind of the damnatory thing for, for Orpah. It's, it tells us there's a spiritual component here too, right? Not just a geographical component, but a spiritual one. Orpah went back to her gods. Orpah went back to her false gods, to her false religion, to things that were opposed to, to the God of the Bible, to the one and only God. She went, she went back to her life that was opposed to that. So Orpah here is a picture of someone who turns back after beginning on the path of Christianity. In Luke 17, verses 31 to 32, Jesus picks up on this idea with some of the same language and says, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Same words, don't turn back. And then he says this, remember Lot's wife. Remember her. There's a lesson there. Remember Lot's wife. From back in Genesis 19, if you've read this story before, she was a notorious example, one of the earliest examples in the Bible of turning back to her old life, to those things that stood opposed to God. And she died for it. She perished for it. And Orpah here is like Lot's wife. She's another example of one who turns back after beginning to taste salvation, beginning to taste Christianity. And so there is just this really initial, like, confronting question for us here that we have to reckon with. Are we kissing Christianity or are we clinging to Christianity? Are we just tasting Christianity or are we drinking deeply? There is a difference. Are we going to turn back like Orpah and give up or are we continuing on the path for the rest of our lives all the way to our dying breath? In one sense, it really is that simple. There are not three daughters-in-law here in the story, only two. Just like there are only two responses to Jesus that are possible, there is no third place of neutrality. We accept him or we reject him. We cling to him or we just entertain the idea of him for a little bit before we go back. All right, so with that in mind, let's move on to this third, this third sun breaking through the clouds type theme, we'll, and we'll come back to that idea, but just hold on to that as we keep reading because we're not just calling ourselves, the book's not just calling us to Christ vaguely, but to a very specific form of him in, in, in a way. Like they're calling us to very specific characteristics of him and to his gospel. And so I want to go back and look at Ruth the woman here again uh, through the lens of verses 16 to 18. Let me read those one more time. It says, but Ruth said, this is after they kind of split up and, and again Orpah goes back, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. All right, so for some of you, this this might be the most famous part of all of Ruth. This is the one that gets quoted a lot or maybe thrown onto a cute little Instagram uh, verse thing or something. Um, And we... And we, and we read it and we think about it, right? It's kind of this thing we should um, maybe, maybe emulate uh, in terms of like Christian loyalty or friendship. But, but here's what I think this ultimately means. Ruth is not just a picture of us in the story, though she is. We talked about that. She's also a picture of Jesus himself. Ruth's words here are not simply a call to Christian commitments and friendship. Uh, and, and I mean, in one sense, maybe that, I think that should be obvious. Maybe it's not, and that's okay if it's not to you, but in one sense, it's, it has to be more, right? I mean, how many of you wives would do exactly what Ruth is doing here if your husband died and your father-in-law died? Probably none of you. And guess what? That's actually okay, because the point here is not to perfectly shape daughter and mother-in-law relationships in exactly this manner. That's not the point. It never says that's the point. Or even on a broader scale, the point is not to shape Christian friendship, though what we are seeing here is a beautiful thing, and we should acknowledge the fact that the gospel does have the power to get us so much over ourselves that things like this can and do actually happen. But with that said, Something much bigger is going on here. These are extreme circumstances, obviously, right? This is history and theology, though, not just moral platitudes. So when viewed through the lens of Christ, then, I think this makes all the more sense. Ruth is a Jesus figure. She is a foreshadowing of Jesus ahead of time. In other words, Like she left the comfort of her homeland to travel to a new country in order to bring help and comfort to her mother-in-law, who was in despair, so did Jesus leave the comforts of heaven to travel to us to bring us help, to bring us spiritual aid in our bitterness, in our despair, in the face of hopelessness. Like Ruth kind of became the hope for Naomi, so does Christ become our hope. Like Ruth had a type of dual citizenship to her because she was Moabite, but also kind of Israelite because she married an Israelite. She married into that. In the same way, Jesus had a dualness to him as well. He was both God and human. He was a son of God or divine, and he was fully human as well. So a bridge of sorts in his very nature between God and sinners. Like Ruth promised to lodge with Naomi, so did Jesus come to dwell among us, the the book of John says, chapter 1. And he would later send his spirit to actually dwell inside us as well. And ultimately, like Ruth gave up so much for the sake of her mother-in-law, so much for the sake of another embittered soul like Naomi, so did Jesus give up his very life for embittered spiritual widows like us. She even talks, Ruth does, about taking on punishment from God at one point. May God do so so much to me and even more also if this doesn't happen. She talks about 
it, those in those terms as well. Jesus dials that up and says, not only uh, might that happen, but it will. I will take on the wrath of God for you. I will be the Passover lamb. I will bear wrath. And in that way, I will solve your problems. I will mend your relationship with your creator. I will be the bridge. I will take the punishment and pay your debts that you might be brought in and brought back to the land. But maybe most significant of all is her promise to, quote, die where she will die. So Ruth says, wherever you die, that's where I'll die. Wherever you're buried, that's where I will be buried as well. Kind of a strange thing to say, right? And again, the point here is not to say, all right, I got to go out now and do this for another Christian. So we got to get grave plots now and figure this out. That's not the point. The point is Christ and to see him in this. And when you see it that way, it makes all the more sense. So in other words, this is a whisper of the gospel beforehand. This is, this is a whisper and a nod to when Jesus would come to die where we die, to die on earth where humans die, to be buried in an actual tomb like we do when we die, to associate with the dead. But then, like in baptism, we rise up with him out of the grave. And, and Jesus himself then, I think he calls out to us in this book and says this to us. Like he's, he's saying, where, where you die, I will die, but I will rise again and pull you up out of the grave with me. In the wake of my resurrection, you will be pulled out yourself. That's how I will save. I will enter into hell. I will pull you out. I will enter into the pit and pull you out. Enter into graves where you die. I'll come that far to get you. That's how much I love you. And I'll pull you out. So do you see the beauty and the love, the romance almost, that there is in that? It means not only that Jesus can empathize with us in our pain, but even more, like Ruth to Naomi here, it means that he enters into our problems and takes them on. Head on. For us. Rather than teaches us how to overcome them ourselves. Ruth's certainly not doing that here for Naomi, right? She's not teaching her how to, how to overcome them herself. She's not a teacher. She's one who clings to her. She goes with her. There, there's a, a relationship of salvation taking place here, just like Jesus for us. And so with Christ and with us in mind, it means that our future death, Jesus has already been there. He's already been in our very tombs, dying for us, lying there for us, ahead of us, then rising again to ensure that it's really not that big a deal. Death for Christians is really kind. Death is quite impotent for Christians. It's, quite, it, it's, not, it's not the end game, but it's also powerless. Quite powerless, actually. And the book of Ruth, not just the Gospels, but the book of Ruth actually teaches this in a shadowy way ahead of time. All right. So Ruth's promise here, to wrap this up, Ruth's promise is actually the promise of Christ to us. So remember what, what Jesus says right before his ascension at the end of the, the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew 28? In fact, let me blend, I'm going to blend those words here with Ruth's to kind of underscore this idea, uh, this promise that, that we have in, um, in the Bible and from Christ himself. And, and that is, Jesus says to us, I will be with you to the end of the age. 
for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. When you sin and when you don't sin, nothing will separate my love from you. Nothing. And, and so the, the crazy love of Ruth points us to the even crazier love of the second Ruth, who is Jesus Christ, who, by the way, was a descendant of Ruth. More on that later in, in the series. And so, and so the last exhortation for you guys to get back to Orpah here and uh, Ruth. When you hear the gospel, which is the famine of sin has ended, God has sent his son, he's visited us, he's made a way back to Eden, uh, all of that, like when you hear that, there's a question Ruth has for us, and that is who are we going to emulate, Ruth or Orpah? Which path are we taking? Whose shoes are we, uh, are we basically putting on here and, and walking in? Are we going to go back to our gods or to the one and only God who has loved us and has saved us from our sins? Our eternal destinies are literally at stake with that question. And so let me, let me pray for us and we'll respond with the final song here. Father, thank you uh, so much for the book of Ruth and I pray you bless our study in it these next few weeks. It's a great book. Help us to understand it. Um, enlighten it for us. Make it, make it make sense. Help us to see through the lens of Christ as you teach us to in your word. Uh, with today's themes in mind, Father, I pray that in these dark times that you would break through the clouds, that your gospel would break through the clouds, that you are a famine ending and a pandemic ending God, that there's all the hope in the world uh, for a bright future with you. Even though suffering has its day, darkness has its day, you use them for good. At the same time, Father, you provide us love, you end our exile, you end our sin, you, like Ruth, have traveled a great distance to come get us, to be with us, to lodge with us, and, and more than that, to be buried for us and with us and to pull us out of the grave. So much beautiful, loving, romantic, salvific imagery here, Father, uh, that, that we have. And, and I pray that that would console, that would embolden us, that would um, move in us to love others as well, especially in our church, uh, but also to confess sin and to repent and uh, to believe that Jesus is Lord and he's the only way back to the land. The only way to be saved is, that, is by Jesus' death because death always precedes salvation in the Bible, always precedes land entrance. May we never forget that. In Christ's name, amen.